0: Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X Face your fears and make everybody out there in dream to next land it's your boy jc
1: and dr capel
0: and happy memorial day today is monday may 31st and we are both off from work today and uh, sitting out in our back patio and I, you can probably hear it all the what do you call them? They're not locusts they're cicadas uh, are cicadas. up in the trees making a bunch of noise because it's a very sunny afternoon very warm and they're trying to mate vigorously <laughs>
1: <laughs> shouldn't we all be trying to mate <laughs> let
0: me just pause right
1: there <laughs> and we're back <laughs> um,
0: I was talking to my daughter recently about the life cycle of cicadas and um, how pointless it all seems for them she, she was mentioning how pointless the whole existence seemed because you live underground for 17 years they basically tap into a root of a tree for subsistence mm-hmm. or whatever nutrients they get from the tree root And then 17 years later, these cicadas crawl out of the ground, they crawl to the tops of the trees, they mate, and then they just die, they fall back to the base of the tree. And, yeah, it seems like a really pointless existence to spend that much time underground. But I also thought, you know, sometimes in life, this is me trying to be philosophical here, but sometimes in life we do things that seem totally pointless to us, but, in the, grand, the bigger scheme of things, they're not. They, they, they can be quite important. In the case of the cicadas, they're aerating the ground when they come out of the ground and they fertilize the tree when they die, to name two things. I'm not really sure what, what other things that they do, but those are two very important roles that they play. Now, why every 17 years? That's really weird. But I guess the cycles for cicadas are different, you know? from uh, community to community or state to state or look look out look out I don't know I don't know much about them but they do they do uh, provide an important purpose mm-hmm. and I was also telling your dad last time they came out of the ground we went fishing with my son and his cousin and you could hook the cicada onto a hook and it would fly around and the second it would hit the water a bass would hit it
1: oh cool
0: so they are valuable. They they do form a, you know, they do have a purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just thinking that, you know, not everything we do, even though it may seem purpose purposeless to us, um, everything serves a purpose. We there might there have is greater some significant
1: point. Impact on other people. Yeah, that you, you don't just even know.
0: yeah, and you just might not see it. Mm-hmm. So don't don't lose sight of that. That's my philosophical thought for the day.
1: That's very powerful. <laughs>
0: So what are we talking about today?
1: I don't know. I'm all up in like, <laughs> what cicadas. am I doing that's making an impact? <laughs> <laughs>
0: How can I find more purpose in my life, Dr. Dr. Cable?
1: <laughs> I don't know. You and me both tried to find that. Yeah? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're going to talk about the book Creativity, Inc. by Dr. Ed Catmull today. I uh, just finished reading it yesterday. It was very hard for me to get through, and I'm not really sure why.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it took me about three weeks to get through the book.
1: That's a really um, long time for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to be able to read a book a lot faster, but...
1: We also had um, a lot of stuff going on that prevented you from being able to sit down and read.
0: Yeah, but towards the end of it, I got really motivated to get, you know, through it and, and learn more about it. Uh, it's mostly, I was surprised to learn, um, basically, a management book, in my opinion. It's mm-hmm. how to be a better manager. And, <laughs> honestly, it kind of lost real <laughs> But the backstory is what really fascinated me,
2: hmm.
0: and so I thought. And so you listened to it on um, iTunes or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, I listened to the audiobook and I loved it from the very beginning. Yeah, and it so totally spoke to me. But I think it's partly because what I what I do in leadership development, and it was focused on building creative cultures through. So for me, it was very validating about the things that I'm trying to do in my current job to make our culture more creative and empower people, and those kinds of things. So it was really nice to hear a wildly successful business and a company I really want to work for someday and how they got there. So yeah, for me, it was like immediately engaging.
0: Yeah, cool. For, for me, it was immediately engaging too, but only because of the story, the backstory yeah. of Pixar. <clears throat> but then when he started, Dr. Catmull got into more managerial stuff. I, I don't know, my was kind of glazed over. But um, I do recognize the importance of the lessons that he was trying to impart. It's just hard to put it in context, but once you, once you start to learn the context of what he was actually going through and how, how he was learning it, it's, it's much more intriguing. mm
1: mm-hmm, definitely.
0: So, the backstory for me, um, to, to recount what I read, was that Dr. Catmull started out with, as a kid with an interest in um, computer animation and a desire to create a feature-length film using nothing but computers. So, when you think back to the 70s and 80s, that kind of thing didn't exist. So, this guy and the people he hung around were really, um, uh, what's the word, their work was revolutionary Mm -hmm. for the world of computer graphics and, and movie making. So that, given that context, it's really a fascinating book and uh, fascinating to learn about the technology that they helped develop to facilitate that. And that's what I was hoping to pull more out of the book, you know, more of a technological focus on uh, computer animation and uh, movie making and all that. I, there were just little tiny hints of it here and there, and it was mostly managerial stuff. So I, that's why I was a little bit disappointed.
1: Well, and he said that in the back end, um, when he was like going through, they have a thing at Pixar called Notes Day, where they really get everybody engaged, uh, everybody in the company engaged to solve organizational problems, which I think is brilliant. But he said, specifically in there, there were a lot of technical problems that people wanted to solve. I'm not going to go into those because I think I'm going to lose my readers.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so so he was writing it more towards people like me versus technical people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, interesting, I I was in the wrong demographic for this audience, I guess, but. So he starts out getting his PhD in computer science from the University of Utah with a focus uh, on, uh, you know, physics and the burgeoning field of computer science, and specifically within computer science, computer animation, computer graphics. And he starts off with animating his hand um, using a computer, and that was became like groundbreaking work at the time. And he gets hired away by the University, or not University, uh, New York Institute of Technology. So he then starts, to, he's tasked with building a technical team around him for the first time. This is first. You know, this is basically his first job and his first task is to build a team. So I understand the importance of the managerial aspects of it because he's he's trained as a computer science, he's a, doc, he's a doctorate, and then the first thing he has to do when he starts working in the real world is manage people. So it's yeah. like a ground shift in everything that he was trained so far to do.
1: And think about it, that happens all the time. You're in organizations, oh, you're really good, good at your job. You're really good at this technical thing. So yeah. we're going to promote you to supervisor. Yeah. Even though you have no leadership experience, no supervisor experience, and we haven't trained you to do anything. Exactly. So it happens all the time. So. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and, the, and that's why this book came out of him. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, so anyway, he, he um, hires his first employee who is another uh, Ph.D., Alvi Ray Smith, out of Texas. He's um, got experience uh, from Berkeley and Stanford and he's worried about hiring him because this guy seems so much more so much smarter than himself and he, he's worried that if he hires him he's eventually going to replace him in the organization uh, and, in fact they the opposite happened they became very complementary uh, um, uh, skill wise and personality wise or whatever and uh, so that became one of his big lessons learned is that always hire, always try to hire somebody smarter than yourself and don't be worried about being replaced. So that I, that definitely resonated with me because I've definitely been on the other side of the interview table thinking, dang, this guy is really smart. And, I, I, and thinking the same thing. If I hire him, I'm probably going to get replaced by him at some point. Or her, whatever. This person. <laughs> um, so that was something that I... A key thing I took away from there was, was that thought that all you, all you should always hire somebody that's smarter than, than yourself. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a good note there. So at NYIT, New York Institute of Technology, he's now working with Alvy Ray Smith, um, who's a peer, a brilliant peer, and starting to build a brilliant technical team around himself. And um, all of a sudden... Somebody from George Lucas's company starts talking to him, and his name was uh, Edlund, Richard Edland. And in the book, he's portrayed as somebody who comes into the office to talk with him, trying to be uh, low-key about the the meeting because he doesn't want anybody in the company to know he's kind of looking around for another job or, or uh, you know, talking to other companies. But uh, Richard comes in with a big Star Wars belt buckle on. And I thought that was really colorful imagery. You know, this guy coming in, doesn't care what anybody thinks, (laughs) he's got the big Star Wars belt. Hey, I worked for George Lucas you know. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So then I dug in a little bit on who Richard Edlin was. Really, Interesting character. So this is another real interesting sideline in this book There's a lot of there's a lot of interesting sidelines and backstories that intrigue me a lot more than the Mm. core of this book Richard Edlin worked on Battlestar Galactica as well and Mm -hmm. Empire Strikes Back Um, So those are big I I was a big fan of both of those (laughs) Growing up so that that's cool to know that about him Um, he was also married to a woman named Rita Kogan and Rita Kogan was the only daughter of a man named Michael Kogan, who was the founder of... Who, so, Michael Kogan was from the Ukraine, but he founded the Japanese Taisho Company. And they're the ones who made video you know, game boxes, and video, the old school video things, like they made Space Invaders for one.
1: Oh, yes!
0: So that is another <laughs> fascinating story. About Michael Kogan and his life, and I don't—I I need to research if there's any books out there about him, but he came from the Ukraine He was yeah. pushed out by the the Ru- Russians as a part of the Jewish uh, Pushing Jews out during World War II. He kind of got taken in under the Japanese but in by the Japanese who wanted to like help with the Jews then <clears throat> Really fascinating story there um, So anyway, that was just a little tidbit that I found really interesting so then once they ended up at Lucasfilm they um, so George Lucas was cutting edge at the time trying to develop new he was interested in using computers to help in the movie production process in some way and other than George Lucas there was nobody else who was even remotely in that mindset at the time so Catmull and um, Smith and others that came over from NYIT were then, now at Lucasfilm trying to help push the cutting edge in terms of using computing technology in the movie making process. They ultimately created a computer called the, the Pixar which um, helped integrate real movie footage with computer generated images that would then merge the two and then rewrite that back out to a film and that was kind of their innovation while they were there at lucasfilm and um, the the irony though was that most of the movie producers the movie animators or whatever there at lucasfilm didn't really want anything to do with computers in their production process they didn't see a a use for it and then also kind of around that same time uh, george lucas went through a divorce so that kind of put additional financial pressure on his whole enterprise and had to scale back a little bit so the first thing he decided to cut was the computer division within (laughs) ilm lucasfilm or whatever so that was that was these guys right Um, (laughs) this is so good so uh george lucas starts looking around for buyers and uh spent many many months Talking to different organizations including I think General Electric or General Motors or something like that some other companies and just nothing was really working and then um, around the same time Steve Jobs gets kicked out of Apple he's mad I'm, I'm sure you know as the founder of Apple to be booted out by the board he's very upset about that and wants to wants you know retribution and, and wants to another ship to to jump onto to kind of make his mark on the world, to con- or to continue marking, making his mark on the world. So after Jobs leaves Apple, he f- forms the Next Computer Corporation. And Next was basically a combination of hardware and software, it was a Unix-like operating system, they did some object-oriented stuff. Somebody at Apple introduced Catmull to Steve Jobs, and that's how they, they got introduced through um, I think it was a CTO at Apple or something like that. Took the two of them up. So then Steve Jobs became interested in purchasing the the computer division of Lucasfilm. Um, And, oh, so, okay, so ultimately, they came to an agreement. Um, Jobs wanted to buy them out, but he wanted to take the Pixar computer that Catmull and Smith had developed, and. And sell that as a competitor to like Apple and, and whatever because he I guess he was still in the mindset of being in the personal computing space but those two guys that's not they didn't line up with what they wanted to do they wanted to make a feature-length computer animated film so they said sorry that's not it's not what we're interested in so they told Jobs no we, we don't we don't want to do that so uh, he, uh, Jobs continued working on Next and whatever, and kind of went away for a while, and then after a while came back and said, all right, you know, I'd be interested in doing, you know, investing in the company and letting you guys run it the way you want to run it, but I would be primary owner of it. So long story short, Jobs pays five million for it, for uh, the computer division within Lucasfilm, uh, roll, spends it out of Lucas, um, it becomes wholly owned by Steve Jobs who owns 70% of the stock and then the rest of the employees got 30% and then he injected 5 million of his own cash into the company to give them some runway to develop their first feature length film and so that's how Pixar was born and because of the name of the computer they used that to call their company Pixar. And it, that's great. I I never knew that story. I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that either. I thought they uh, were self-funded and things, and then Steve Jobs came in. Steve Jobs came in later, so it was really interesting to read, like the whole birth of the the company. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of weird, serendipitous events that happen as well oh, in yeah. this story, and in one of our previous podcasts, we talked about. Um, the Right of a Lifetime book written by Bob Iger, yeah. was the CEO of Disney, and so Bob Iger plays mm-hmm. very strongly in this book as well because mm-hmm. Disney has a very big role in the future of Pixar, and so all these interconnections are very very interesting. And one of which was the story of John Lasseter, you mm-hmm. know, him the, the the creative director of, of Pixar. So when um, Catmull was at Lucas, Lucasfilm, a bunch of bigwigs would come through there all the time, like uh, Steven Spielberg and, uh, you know, other organizations, just kind of looking at how they were doing things. And um, the Disney Animation Studio came through there one time, and John Lasseter's first job was at Disney Animation, and so he was one of the Younger people coming through, looking at some of the work that was being done, it was taken away by the computer. Some of the computer stuff that Catmull and his team had put together, um, and his his personal dream also was he had a, 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 some story about a toaster or something like that, and um, he wanted to make that using computer animation, and that, that was what was driving him. So he was really fascinated with the work that was going on at Lucasfilm, and so he continued pushing on that at Disney Animation and they ultimately fired him because Disney Animation wasn't at all interested in computer animation. This is John Lasseter. Mm-hmm. The irony is that <laughs> Pixar hired John Lasseter and then he ends up becoming the one of the heads of animation at Disney after Disney purchases Pixar. So that was a really interesting twist, I thought. The other interesting twist with Lasseter, of course, was after Pixar, after Disney purchased Pixar, and Lasseter becomes head of creative directing, direct creative director, or whatever. Um, he gets in trouble with you know, sexual harassment cases start coming up against him, and Bob Iger has to let him go. I didn't realize that, wow. And Bob Iger in his book, The Right of a Lifetime, mentions that was one of the hardest decisions that he had to make as the CEO of Disney.
2: Dang.
0: Really, really fascinating, huh? Yeah.
2: Um,
0: another interesting aspect of the whole backstory was uh, Steve Jobs being very concerned about the stability of Pixar. Mm. So now they're, they're spun out of Lucasfilm, they're chugging along, they're working. None of them know if they're gonna be successful at all. They don't even know, no one's ever generated a computer animated full feature length film before. So, I mean, if you think about that, it's such a, such a risk, such a very scary, exciting time um, to be a part of a company that you don't even know you can do what, you're, what you wanna do as history, you know, hindsight 20 or whatever, they were largely, hugely successful with the release of Toy Story. And that became the first computer generated full feature-length film. And blockbuster blockbuster success, hugely successful. Um, so that's great. So now there is some anecdotal evidence that what they're doing can be su- successful, successful, but still, um, they have to hurry up and have another great success in order to keep the company going.
1: I thought part of that issue though was with Toy Star because they were making like little animated films but they didn't, they were knew how to do really excellent computer animated movies but they didn't have any like storyline so they needed storytellers in order to be able to help them make this mm-hmm.
0: well i think yeah. that's what john Lasseter's strength was
1: yeah as to a, how to actually the tell story a
0: story yeah and the, and the, yeah the creative aspects of it
2: yeah.
0: yeah but also it took like two to three years to generate a film yeah and so you got to have a bucket of money to get you through the drive and and they couldn't they couldn't, they didn't have the scale to work on multiple feature films all at the same time. Then yeah. it was just like, all right, we got one success. Now we got to start working on the next one, which we're not going to be able to release for another two to three years, which we don't even, we don't even know if we're going to succeed. And what if we fail after two years and that movie's a flop, we're done. So there was this long period in Pixar's life where they were like, they could not fail. They they did not have any room to fail. And that's really, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of an employee in a company like that. That's, I've been in a company like that, it's scary.
1: And at the same time, they were able to create a empowering culture where failure's okay in small, like where we're going to have failure. So one of the things I loved about what he said is that I have a vision for what the end is like. And we're gonna fail over and over and over and over again, and that vision is gonna change at the end. And those small failures are okay because we're gonna learn from them. So hmm. it's actually creating a culture of risk. While at the end result is we have to do a successful film, it's okay if you take a risk. Yeah, and
0: he says that. He says that. I mean, any manager says that, right? No. <laughs> well, a lot <laughs> many of many
1: don't. A, a
0: lot do, but I think the financial reality was they could not afford to fail. Yeah. Like. I mean, if they failed, the company disappears. Yeah, yeah. And one of, the, one of the great stories that he tells was when somebody... This is the only, like, one of the few technical things that he mentioned in the book was when somebody accidentally did an rm-rf star on one of their Linux directories that had all of the Toy Story I- I- images that they had created. So what created. does that mean so,
1: to us non-computer it's people? A,
0: it's a Unix command to remove everything without with extreme prejudice like just just get rid of it just delete it all and somebody did that in the directory that had all the Toy Story images in it and they were gone and they didn't have any backups of it
1: well they did have a backup but the backup failed
0: right yeah so the only saving grace was the woman who was working from home on maternity leave who was backing up files to her local computer.
1: Which she wasn't supposed to be doing. Yeah, which wasn't, she was She saved the company from She broke the rules and saved the company. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> These are my people <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, But yeah, I mean just so many little stories like that. It just is it luck? Is it divine providence? I don't know, but Anyway, they were very precariously situated for a, a number of years. And, and one of the ways Steve Jobs wanted to solve that was to take the company public.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so um, that's how he, he pitched the idea of taking the company public to the, the head guys. And I have a feeling it was it was a sales pitch because the one who really benefited financially from going public was Steve Jobs. But at the same time, it do, it did help to guarantee some stability to the employees of the company. So uh, win-win win-win scenario, win-win sales job there. A lot of win-win sales jobs in this in this the life of this company and Disney and, and all that. It's really interesting to to think about. So they timed it just right. I think it was the release of Toy Story 2, or I
1: think so, yeah,
0: something like that. So as soon as Toy Story 2, I think, came out. They went public. And that was a that one that release was extremely um, popular as well. Did great. Company goes public. That's that's the move that made Steve Jobs a billionaire when they took Pixar public. Which I thought was interesting. I thought, well shoot, you started Apple. But
1: it has nothing to do with Apple which made his money. But it was did, his yeah, Pixar is what
0: wow. made him all his money. Dang. That was another thing I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So then that got the company some stability. And then um, he, you know, some period later, pitched him again and said, hey, the, you know, you guys are on a yacht right now. You're pretty stable in, in the big rolling waves of the marketplace. But if you want to be on a cruise ship, we need to get on a cruise ship to be even more safe. And in order to do that, we need to sell to a bigger company. And that's when he started talking to Michael Eisner, who then was the CEO of Disney, but Jobs and Eisner didn't click. They didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. They couldn't do a deal. So, um, And if you read, and we read about that in uh, Bob Iger's book. So when Bob Iger comes to the helm, uh, negotiations start again between Disney and Jobs about Pixar and Disney Animation has been flagging for a number of years. They haven't had any. I think it was thinking of something like sixteen years or something. They hadn't yeah. had a, a good animated release, and so they were hungry for some. Uh, and, uh, and, and they needed creativity. They needed to rejuvenate their creativity at Disney Animation, and they looked at Pixar as a way to do that. So it was a really good idea thought, I think to merge those two companies. At least it, it appears that way to me. So, I mean, Disney Animation was, was flagging, Pixar was kicking ass. Why not bring the two together and um, bring the old school in with the new school, the old, the old school uh, artistry in with the new school use of technology to do that and create a whole new thing?
1: Yeah. And uh, it was Nemo that they went public after. Because Toy Story Two, there was a whole issue with Disney and them. Oh, was it Nemo? Yeah, it was Nemo. Oh, okay. Yeah, just remembering. Sorry, not yeah. that it's relevant, except that, um, that for Toy Story Two, there was a conflict between Disney and Pixar because they wanted to go straight to video, and Pixar says, "No, oh, we right. don't want to go straight to video. We you're want right. to do a future film." You're right. You're right. Yeah.
2: You're right. Okay. yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um. Yeah. So the the whole deal with Pixar and Disney was was really cool. I think. Yeah. And um, so then, you know, long story short, they, br- they brought in Pixar into Disney. Bob Iger does a stock, all stock deal with Jobs. Jobs walks away with 7.4 billion. Well, well the, sell, the sell of the company was 7.4 billion. And um, there, there's a really touching paragraph in the book where at the end of that deal, they had to address the employees. I think Pixar was like, 400 and um wait no it was like 41 employees when they sold to disney for 7.4 billion i mean that's that little number there you think about that that is 41 people made 7.4 billion dollars for steve jobs that's amazing that is amazing That is really amazing um there's a lot of talk on Steve Jobs's part, about how small, smart teams can outperform large teams. When uh, Steve Jobs left Next, he took about eight employees with him from Apple to to start to help start the company. And because he had done that, Apple in turn sued him. You know, because they thought he was going to be a big threat to them. And his quote was, "When they got sued, it is hard to think that a two billion dollar company with forty three hundred plus people." couldn't compete with six people in blue jeans
1: <laughs> that's brilliant I love that.
0: that's
2: brilliant it, it's true yeah. i mean
0: sm- small sets of smart people can outperform huge organizations and and steve jobs knew that very intimately so i thought that was really cool but anyway um so they sell to disney the interesting other interesting things there were that oh yeah i was talking about the small paragraph in there that was very touching where when they addressed the employees after this the merger they all went up to uh lassiter and um catmull and jobs went up to catmull's office and um steve jobs hugged them and cried and tears of relief and joy and you know i'm sure he he was very happy to be a multi-billionaire at that point as well but um it was just kind of really touching that they had survived all the ups and downs and of, a small, of, of that company not knowing what it was going to do, and becoming one of the biggest things that Steve Jobs ended up doing in his life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's really, really interesting, really, really cool to think about that.
1: It's a beautiful story. Like having passion in something really does make a difference. Having passion and dedication to what you're doing, you can make a difference. Steve Jobs came in one of the Pixar brain trust meetings and said I don't like this and uh, you need to change it. I don't remember what this thing was but the head of that particular film said from artistic approach- Oh it was the widescreen versus oh, yeah, narrow screen. Yeah. Bugs Life. Bugs- yes. Thank you. And so in *A Bugs Life apparently for the theaters back in the day you had to make movies in widescreen and if you remember if you're our age When you put widescreen on a regular TV, you have those dark lines above and below, Mm. and the picture's smaller. And so there was a dispute between the marketing folks and the creative folks as to the best approach. And Steve Jobs agreed with the marketing folks, which said, We need to cut off the sides and make it for more
2: More home TVs. Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, so the creative person fought back, stood toe-to-toe with Steve Jobs and said, no, here's why we can't do that. Here's why it's going to um, denigrate the uh, creative integrity, etc. And then uh, Steve walked out and... With no
0: resolution. With no, yeah, no
1: resolution. And this creative director said to um, Ed that, oh my God, I can't believe I just fought with Steve Jobs. That was a terrible idea. And Ed said, no, I mean, that's exactly, you won, the, you won the battle because you showed so much passion and reason for what you do. So it's this, the passion that really helps us to succeed.
0: Hmm. And that's apparently what Jobs is like. He liked yeah. the argument. Not necessarily to win the argument, but to fine-tune his argument. Mm. And apparently he had a pretty open mind from some perspectives. It, you know, didn't have to win every argument, but the argument helped him get smarter about how he looked at things.
1: I feel like I do that a lot. Like, one of the things I love that Ed said in the beginning was, um, in chapter 2, about having an outward mind. So, one of the things that we look at mm. in my world is having an outward mindset and understanding the perspectives as others because you helped to think differently. He also talked about asking better questions. That's the whole reason I got a doctorate is because I wasn't thinking about things from all perspectives and mm. I, I didn't ask really good questions. And so that helped me think about um, what questions I need to ask to find out where my blind sights are and where I'm not understanding to have that outward mindset focus. And so he talks about it right there in chapter two and I think that's really powerful in order to, to be able to be a good leader and lead in all these directions and have a vision. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting aspect of the book, um, talking about blindsides for leaders to be able to see what's actually going on in the organization Ooh, that, yeah. they, that they can't really see yeah. a lot of times. Unless, like when you got
2: promoted. Yeah, yeah. Unless
0: there's some kind of bottom-up feedback that. People are, who are in middle management and above can't really see what's going on in the organization. I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that really. Um, so there's a lot of that. How How can managers have better visibility into what's going on in the organization? How can the leaders at the top have better visibility? How can you encourage honesty for that information to bubble up from the bottom? I thought that was... Intriguing.
1: How do you have radical candor where you, at yeah. the bottom level, are comfortable yeah. having that discussion? Where you
0: want to share that information? Yeah.
1: I guess that's where like people like me come in because even in organizations where it's completely not acceptable, I have very much radical candor where you tell them what's going on,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: even if it hurts or it's hard, or you tell them what's going on, and uh, it's the leader's job to hear it, and so. Mm. Um, I think that's why I've gotten to where I am today in some aspects or why I haven't gotten to where I should be.
0: <laughs> it's not but just the leader's job to hear it. It's the leader's job to cajole and poke and ask and dig and be curious also. I, I thought that was really, that was kind of an eye opening thought to me as
2: well.
1: And that's one of the things I loved about the whole um, notes day and the notes day is where they asked everybody in the organization what's wrong with the organization and this yeah. is the vision. How do we get here? And John Lester said, apparently I suck. And you guys were willing to say, I suck. <laughs> and I'm going to change it. And that's the thing, too, is like, okay, I see this. I see this in me. I'm going to change this uh-huh. in myself. And a lot of leaders aren't willing to be that vulnerable. And so I was very impressed with that.
0: Uh-huh. That hurts. I've, I've had that feedback. It, it sucks. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, those things. But uh, back, <laughs> back to the business aspect of it. So, um, here's the other interesting thing. Well, Jobs, Jobs is really interesting to me. I mean, it's fascinating character to everybody, I guess. But the fact that he sold Next back to Apple. So, he, he got booted out of Apple, right? The board kicked him out. And then he went and created Next Computers. And then he turns around and he sells Next back to Apple. And that is what became the foundation for OS X and Apple the, the operating system is mock oh, wow. based unix they they brought that in and that was like a great change for apple i mean mac os before that was kind of like it was crap but os x just changed the game for them and so that was such a brilliant a brilliant move mm-hmm. like how do you, you i don't even i couldn't even think of doing something like that how did that even come about it's just brilliant But add to that, that he sold the company for Apple shares. So he he now became, he had so many stock, so much Apple stock at the end of that sale that he was now an Apple advisor, which led him back into becoming the CEO of Apple. (laughs) That's mind boggling to me. Like that's really, really smart.
1: And was that intentional that he saw all these strategic moves and De- deliberately
0: right took is that approach or was it Is it just luck?
2: It like, could
1: have been luck. It could have been mean, combination.
0: Wow. And same thing with Pixar. Yeah. I mean the fact that Pixar is back back in Disney and and, and at the same time Bob Iger bought Lucasfilm. <laughs> and Lucasfilm had together. Pixar.
1: Yep. He had
0: Pixar before <laughs> mm-hmm. He, he sold it. I mean, that's just. Come on. Yeah. Like this is, is this just all orchestrated or just luck or what? It had had George Lucas held on to Ed Catmull and those guys, and the Pixar computer, and had he let them do what they wanted to do, within Lucasfilm? He could have been, Lucasfilm could have been worth so much more.
1: Or maybe it would have failed and it was all of these other situations that got Pixar to where they were.
0: But the fact that all of Lucasfilm only sold for $4, million, 4 billion yeah. to Disney and Pixar sold for 7
1: billion.
0: Yeah. That's just incredible.
1: Well, I think too, and I think it's part of one of the other podcasts that you talked about lucas films didn't have all the stories written right yeah and pixar had like six or seven stories ready to go and lucas had to yeah actually write some content so it was worth buying versus yeah versus pixar was like well, all right we got all this stuff to sell you
0: same with marvel marvel yeah. had that whole book remember that whole book of characters <laughs> like hey we we've got a whole we could do we could do movies from now until the end of time i need be the of marvel <laughs> But still, Marvel only sold for four billion too. So. Yeah. But here's the other interesting thing. So you're like, oh man, George Lucas, he 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 missed out, right? But if you Google the net worth of all these guys, like, or search whatever search engine you want to use, um, you can get a, a feel for how much their net worths are. And George Lucas is about around ten billion, according to what you can find on the on the web. Whereas it looks like. Um, Steve Jobs ended up around 9 billion you know and um, Bob Iger is probably around 9 billion too so I think George Lucas still <laughs> came out ahead of all of those people he did
1: create Star Wars <laughs> Yeah.
0: and then I was looking at okay trying to figure out well how much would how much is Ed Catmull worth as you know the head of Pixar and starting he, he basically started Pixar mm-hmm. with uh, Smith Alvy Ray Smith, um, but I negligible. I mean negligible. I think he's worth around fifty million. I guess just based on what I can see online. Um, for a company that sold for seven point four billion, he only made like maybe around forty or fifty million.
1: Well, I guess if you only ah. if somebody else owns seventy percent of the company.
0: So I'm just talking about that, thinking about how. Do people position themselves to, to make so much wealth, mm. to acquire so much wealth? Um, and it, it's really interesting how things played out with with these companies and with Disney. And really, I, I think in the end, the core figure of it all is Bob Iger. He's the man. Like, out of all of these characters, Bob Iger is probably the one that I respect the most, I mm-hmm. have the most respect for, just because of how he came up through his chain of command, very bottom of ABC, and um, how it intersected with Warren Buffett. So it's interesting how the Snowball book about Warren Buffett, the Bob Iger book, and this Creativity Inc. they all kind of intersect in weird ways. You know, Warren Buffett is involved, Bob Iger is involved, Steve Jobs is involved. These are like the big creative financial, some of, if not most of the creative financial brains of america i think Mm -hmm. i mean you could argue a whole bunch of others but it's just interesting how these the characters in these books all intersect in in some some way
1: yeah definitely
0: so anyway that was my exciting take on the book not so much about organizational structure do you have any other thoughts that you want to talk about organizational leadership and that kind of thing because i (laughs) i mean i thought it was interesting but it didn't I was so much more interested in the financial wheelings and dealings by these big wigs behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, I thought the integration and the different perspectives, hearing Bob Iger's perspective of the Pixar acclamation not acclimation, acquisition. acquisition, thank you. So the Pixar acquisition versus Cat description of it, I think that was fascinating. I would love to hear Steve Jobs' perspective and uh, and probably Lester's perspective too. Who's? Lassiter. John Lassiter, yeah. yeah. To really, you know, get more of a full picture. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, their perceptions were were integrated, but also different. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Um, so, Creativity Inc., I, you know, just reading the title, I was thinking that, oh, there's going to be a lot in this book about how to inculcate a, uh, a culture of creativity in an organization. It just seemed like a bunch of managerial stuff, which to me is does not smack of creativity
1: (laughs) so yes and it was managerial it was also very culture focused Uh, and how to create those cultures of creativity and you can't do that unless you have managers who are open to it so how in a management role do you help your people want to take risk Mm -hmm. how do you how do you help them be engaged in the organization how do you help them have radical candor all of these things so without that Mm. The culture won't exist. Mm -hmm. So that's um, all I saw was how to build a culture of creativity in there.
2: Okay. Well, good. But I'm
1: coming at it obviously from a very different lens. Uh
0: huh. Um, I I like the aspects of uh, the brain trust. Mm -hmm. Establishing a brain trust and and using that to help ensure the quality of your creativity. Um, there's definitely a culture within Pixar of excellence and pushing the envelope, and not just in terms of technology, but in terms of art and mm-hmm. creativity, and using that brain trust to help be the litmus test for how the organization is is meeting those standards. I thought it was really it was really good.
1: And so you could look at that from a managerial perspective, saying, okay, we're going to do this. It's, but it's very culturally based, um, wherein the management is creating the space for them to do this. I mean, if you think about the transition they talked about at Disney, where they tried to do it, but it didn't quite work so well. So they had to infuse rules and regulations on how this works. Uh, and, and that's very well versed in the literature of a culture of feedback, how to create a culture of giving, giving feedback, which mm-hmm. facilitates mm-hmm. the culture of risk and facilitates creativity. Right. Uh, I've experienced this uh, in its wholeheartedness, uh, my last team that I worked in, where, I mean, we gave each other feedback, positive and improvement, all the time. It was just part of who we are, and you don't take it personally. But it's you have to have that foundational trust piece before you can get to that point. Mm -hmm. So the one aspect that I was missing in this book is how do you how do you build trust with others? And so I think that would be Mm. a precursor for managers to read something like Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey or some other um, foundational trust book and then take this after. And building the two, you could really, really foster some powerful creativity in organizations.
0: organization. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the cleanliness of desks
1: oh my god and
0: how Catmull saw that as representative of the creativity of an organization and coming from people who support the government like, <laughs> It's almost a rule that you have to keep your desk clean, right? Yeah, no comes personal to visit things. And, <laughs> and that was very off-putting to Catmull when he went to go visit Disney Animation because they had the same rules. you got to keep your desk clean, no personal paraphernalia or anything like that. Whereas Pixar, you are highly encouraged to personalize your workspace from like building entire sets <laughs> in your cube space or your office space. That's expected of you to help foster creativity and create different visuals within the office space.
1: I had to laugh so hard when I read that section um, because my, my friend Rachel and I, we worked at Department of Defense together mm. and uh, we, do, we do learning and development. So we have to be creative to create different learning activities that are exciting, whatever. Anyway, um, so we had, all these like legos and toys and action figures we our cubicles were facing each other so on the wall between us we had all of these toys and action figures and things and we would play over the cubicle wall and throw things at one another we had all kinds of stuff and nobody else did (laughs) um you didn't get in
2: trouble for that
1: (laughs) did i care (laughs) no i didn't get in trouble um, but,
0: so it made me think, though. But why is the government like that? Why does the government? Because we have the rules. Care? Why though? <laughs> like, in the spirit of, sh- shouldn't shouldn't the government, U.S. government, want to encourage creativity across all sectors, and allow? Uh, this is a freedom, freedom-loving country. You know, <laughs> it's just it's funny.
1: It is. It's a, and and some I think agencies foster those type of experiences more than others yeah like some really would really embrace it and others wouldn't i think it's just really dependent on where you Uh are
2: okay
0: well on that note i will let's conclude this podcast creativity inc it's a very fascinating book i've dog-eared almost every single page (laughs) more and more i'm like i don't know how i can assimilate stuff in these books uh, you basically have to read i have to read three or four times and i don't have the time but you know, there's so many other books i want to read but all right thanks for listening to episode 29 we will talk to you soon over
2: now bye